For an opening verse of Scripture, you may turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Will not be too long or too heavy in this assembly, as long as you don't think a little grammar lesson is too heavy. But I love to rejoice in the grammar of God's Word. And find out that it doesn't support Arminianism, but it supports what we believe. Rather than read the Bible for sound bites that connect faith and salvation without explaining what kind of faith, whose faith, what kind of salvation, which salvation, let's always be faithful to seek the true sense of the Word of God. The more sure scriptures, and they are more sure than God's voice from heaven, that I taught you last Lord's Day are only as good as our interpretation of them. Otherwise, the Bible becomes a trap and a snare for us, just as the Lord taught that it was designed to do so. His parables that He preached were not to make the gospel plain, but to make the gospel complicated so that people couldn't be converted. Matthew 13, 10 through 17. It's hard to believe that's in the Bible, since we were all taught in Sunday school that God used parables to make the gospel plain for the common people. Uh Uh-uh. A parable is a riddle. Parables aren't plain. Parables are difficult. The disciples came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 and said, Why in the world are you speaking to them in parables? They don't understand what you're talking about. He said, Because it's not given to them to understand what I'm talking about. It's given to you to understand. And I'll explain the parable later to you. And he took eight verses to explain that. That's Matthew 13, 10 through 17. I, I bless the God of heaven. Amen for showing us that little fact right there that so many are ignorant of. The voice of a verb. I didn't know that verbs have voices. I hear someone saying, the voice of a verb is the use of a verb, and you have to determine whether the verb is action on the part of the subject or whether the subject is passively being acted upon by another. The voice of a verb. A verb is either active, meaning that someone is performing, or the verb is the passive voice, meaning that it's being acted upon by another. If I take the word he and the verb swallowed and the object fish, we can have these two possible sentences. He swallowed the fish. Is swallowed an active or a passive verb? It's active because he swallowed the fish. But if I say he was swallowed by the fish, he is in the passive role of the fish swallowing him. Is there a difference between those two sentences? I use the same words. Huge difference. Is it in the Bible? Of course it's in the Bible. Look at Galatians 4.9 because it's part of language. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul in teaching them how thankful they ought to be for having been saved from false religion, in verses 1 through 8, he said, But now, Galatians 4, 9, After that ye have known God, that's their activity of knowing God, or rather, are known of God. Is there a difference between those two? But now after that ye have known God, or rather, it's better to say, are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Why would you go back to that religion after you've known God? Or let me put it better, after God's known you. 
And that's what we believe, brethren. That God knowing us is more important than us knowing God. When you get to heaven, you want to make sure He knows you. Not that you know, not that you know Him or that you think you know Him. Many are going to say to the Lord Jesus Christ in that day, Lord, Lord, they're going to think they know Him. But He's going to say, I never knew you. We want Him to know us rather than us knowing Him. Or we're in trouble in the great day of judgment. And the difference is made in one verse where the apostle shows us the two verb voices of action or passivity. An active verb of knowing God or a passive verb of being known by God. Now, of course, God is acting, but it's we're the ones being acted upon. He knows us. Right. And you know, that's a wonderful thought in the Bible. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, it says that the doctrine of preterism taught by the first preterist in the Bible, and don't worry about that if you don't know what I'm referring to, but every one of you should know what I'm referring to. It says that they overthrew the faith of some. But the next verse, 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Even when, oh, You know this verse is coming again in this series, right? Even when our faith is overthrown, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are His. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2.18 and 19. I thank God for that. Though the Galatians departed from the faith and fell from grace, the doctrine of grace, God knew them. They were His. And so this verse shows us the two verb voices. Look at 1 Corinthians 13.10 for another quick example of it. 1 Corinthians 13.10. I really want the 12th verse. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Do you see? that Paul is speaking of himself in the first person, I know, and I shall know, but then shall I be known, even as also I am known. See, he's being acted upon by someone else knowing him. And so there's the comparison between us acting or God acting upon us. Look at Ephesians 1, and I've already used it this morning, but I want you to look at it again and realize it's the voice of a verb and for us to be thankful for the distinction. If we don't learn some English grammar, then we don't learn how to read intelligently. If we don't learn how to read intelligently, then the Bible's a closed book to us. God has chosen not to convey the knowledge of Himself by eating fruit off a tree, and it causes our brains to grow in knowledge. God does not infuse it into us during the night, though He does a little bit of both things that I've mentioned so far. Forget the fruit off a tree. But God has chosen to reveal Himself in writing, which is more sure than His voice from heaven, and we have to learn how to read intelligently in order to gather from it all that He's got there for us. If we don't pay attention in school, and I wish I would have known that, but it probably wouldn't have helped, Dad, so don't feel bad. I would have needed conviction of the Holy Spirit to have appreciated first grade English, second grade English, and I'm going to run out of oxygen and vapor in my mouth. Because all the years I wasted in school, I wish I could go back. I had to learn English after I graduated. Now that's just ridiculous. But I, hadn't, I didn't have the motive in front of me. You know, the only books I was reading, you don't even want to hear them. To read this book requires a knowledge of intelligent reading. When you look at some of Paul's sentences, it would take a PhD in English to diagram them. Because Paul's sentences are huge. 
before he'll come to an end where he puts a period. I'm thinking right now of Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. Wow, but it's a wonderful sentence. And it's jam-packed full of information, but we need to learn how to read. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 says that we were predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. Jesus Christ has adopted some to be His children and His brethren, and we were predestinated to that status. According to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which we have been doing this day in this church, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. That's a passive verb construction where we're being accepted by God. We're not doing the accepting. And I know I preached it in the first service, but I'm preaching it again in the second service just to show you an example of the passive use of a verb where God is doing the accepting. We're the ones being accepted. We're not doing the accepting and God being the one accepted. What's important is that God accepts us. Some of you have come to me and told me that you loved going through Isaiah 53 again where you read the words, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. It's, it's the old doctrine of satisfaction. No one preaches it anymore. No one writes about it anymore. But our fathers in the faith knew a doctrine called the doctrine of satisfaction taken from that verse and other verses where God was satisfied. The holy claims of His just law that condemned us to death was satisfied by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's being accepted in the Beloved, where God's doing the accepting, and we're being accepted by Him. Thank you, Lord. This was so important to the... There's not a verse in the Bible that says, accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Do you know who needs to accept Jesus as my personal Savior? Almighty God needs to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as a sufficient Savior for Jonathan Crosby, because it takes quite a Savior just as much for you, so don't get haughty. But he has to accept. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to show you another example of how Paul viewed accepting. It's unbelievable. These people will be told, as soon as they come forward and make this little Mickey Mouse 30-second decision for Jesus, well, now that you've accepted Jesus, you can know for the rest of your life, no matter what happens, if you die, you're going to go straight to heaven. That's what they're told. Now, there's not a verse in the Bible that says that. The Apostle Paul spent his whole life to be accepted of him. I'll show you. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 5. Wherefore we labor... The Apostle Paul worked hard at this project. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. The Apostle Paul cared about being accepted of God, not accepting God. Oh, I wish that every pulpit in America was thundering with, are you living in such a way that God will accept your life? Are you laboring like the Apostle Paul to be accepted of Him? Because that's what counts. When you tell people, no matter what you do from this day forward, your name is in the book of life, and if you die, you're going to go straight to heaven, there is no motivation for them to live for the Lord. But look at this man. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, whether we're here on earth or we're in heaven, we may be accepted of Him. We want Him to accept this church right now. By Him I mean God. And we want God to accept us when we stand before His holy presence. I'm showing you the voice of verbs. Now let's go to some verb tenses. We have verb tenses. I ran, I run, I will run. Is that Pat's present and future? Okay, good. Verb tenses. It doesn't matter where the verb occurs in a sentence. 
It doesn't matter what verb comes first, what verb comes second, what verb is third. In each verb, it's the tense of the verb that tells you the priority of the action. That is a that is a kindergartner pretending he can read to say that, well, this verb came before this verb in the sentence. That has nothing to do with it. It's what verb tense each verb is in. Now let me also remind you that there is a tense called the perfect tense. The perfect tense, there's past perfect, present perfect, and future perfect, means the action was perfected in the past, but it's still true in the present. I have run. That means the running's over with, and it's still true right now. I run is a present tense running. I have run is perfect present tense act of running. And we're going to see that in the Bible. The perfect tense, the present perfect tense, is an action completed in the past, but is still true in the present. Let's look in the Word of God and see some of these. There's a whole outline on this subject. And remember, I'm not going to plumb the depths of every one of these subjects, but we're going to be broad in this study of the role of faith in salvation. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Some know these things well. Others need to be reminded of them. All of you, I want to be established in it. And for those that would listen to this by way of the internet or our streaming services, I want them to be established in it as well. 1 John 5, 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. I know there's a second half to this verse, but it's on a different subject. It's on the love of the brethren. I'll read it to you. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. If you truly love God, then you are going to love those that are the children of God. Because how can you love the Father without loving the Father's children? If you're part of the family of God, you're going to love all the children of God. Which ought to be the description of this church that we love all the children of God in this assembly. That's the second half of the verse. I want the first half. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, if we're very simplistic and we love sound bites, we're going to look at this little clause and we're going to say, the verb believe comes first. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And we're going to say the new birth or being born again, being regenerated, being quickened, comes second. Therefore, you have to believe in order to be born again. Wrong. Whosoever believeth is a present tense verb. Believeth is a present tense verb. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Is born is a perfect present tense verb of the, the verb of being born again. An action perfected in the past, but still true in the present. It can also be written, instead of is born, which our King James Version done, would be has been born. Those are the identical constructions. Both of them are passive voice, perfect tense, of the verb to be born again. You say, we're taking your word for that, because I didn't pay attention in school either. You don't have to. We're going to take the Scripture's word for it. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. They have been born of God. That's a perfect tense, present perfect tense verb. That they're already born of God. They were born of God in the past, still true in the present, when they're doing their believing. Let me prove it to you from 1 John. And I enjoy this. And Colin, you better enjoy it. Okay, let's go to 1 John 2.29 and see if we can find some similar construction. 
And every young man in here. And every older man in here. I remember the first time, the second time, and the third time I heard these things. I wanted to jump up and punch the air. Praise God. The boy who didn't learn English was learning it from God's word. If you'd asked me what a perfect tense was when I was in the 10th grade or 11th grade, I'd have said, yes, they played a perfect game last Friday night for the football team. I wouldn't have known what you were talking about. The greatest academic underachiever in the history of mankind. But thanks be to God. There is a spirit in man, and the Almighty giveth him understanding. Job chapter 32. 1 John 2.29. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that, and here we go, everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. We got the same construction. It's just doing righteousness instead of believing. It's present tense. Ye know that every one that doeth righteousness, doeth righteousness is present tense, is born of him, is perfect tense. If you want to say, doing righteousness comes first, and born again comes second, therefore doing righteousness is necessary to get born again. Do you want to take that position? That you have to do righteousness in order to be born again? Or do we do righteousness because we already are born again? There isn't an unborn again man that's ever done any righteousness in the history of the planet. That's 1 John 2.29. Look at it. It's teaching us the verb tenses because we know that doing righteousness has to come after being born again, not in front of it. Because not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. All the Bible's consistent. Okay, look at uh, 4.7. Oh, I thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You don't even have to turn far. We can just stay in First John. He wanted to use this kind of language. He's going to give us a... A grammar lesson. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And here we go. Here's our clause. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Hmm. Okay, the loving the brethren comes first and the being born of God comes second. Are we going to be that simplistic? Or when it says is born of God... That's the present perfect tense, meaning an action perfected in the past, still true in the present. So we are born again first, and because we are born again, we love the brethren. Yes, that's the position we better take, or we end up with this position. You have to love the brethren in order to be born again. If you're loving the brethren in order to be born again, would you tell me which part of you is loving the brethren? Because I'll tell you what part it is. It's your flesh. Because until you're born again, all you've got is flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Until you're born again and you have that spiritual new man, you're not going to love anyone. The Apostle Paul said before we were born again, in Titus chapter 3, we were hateful and hating one another, living in malice and envy. So the Bible's just explained 1 John 5, 1 to us. Do you know what we just did? 1 John 5, 1, 1 John 2, 29, 4, 7. And we come back. We've made almost a full circle, but it's getting better. I'm just playing with you right now because this is so much pleasure in the Word of God to understand what God has taught us. He must regenerate us first before we believe on His Son, Jesus Christ. He must regenerate us first before we will ever do righteousness. He must regenerate us first before we will ever love the brethren in a truly and true and sincere and honest way. 3.14. Let's see if this will help gel things in your mind. Because you're still trusting me on the words, is born of God. I hope you can see that if you take the other position, you're totally wrong and you're, you're guilty of heresy on three counts. Because you've got to do righteousness in order to be born again. 
How much righteousness? The whole law or part of the law? In order to get born again. How much, does, how much are you going to ask of my flesh in order to get born again? 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Amen. And does that put it in order for us? Amen. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. If you show me someone loving the brethren, I will tell you that man was born of God in the past sometime. He's already born of God for him to love the brethren that way because this verse, and this verse right here is no different than 4, 7, 2, 29, and 5, 1 because is born of God is a perfect present tense verb meaning it was an action perfected in the past and you're believing in the present. You're loving in the present. You're doing righteousness in the present. But in all three cases, you were born again before that. Right. And it's explained to us right there in 3.14. You say, how do you know to put those verses together in that way? Because it was done to me, and I thank God for it. Amen. I thank God for the beautiful feet that came and did this to me. And I'm, I'm grappling with perfect tenses and all of a sudden, it gels. Praise God. Amen. Praise His glorious name. Johnny Motorcycle knows English grammar from the first epistle of John. Look at chapter 4. And I remember the first time the older Adam heard this. He was punching the air too. 4.15. First John 4.15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Notice the order of the verbs. It says confessed first in the sentence, and God knows him second. So does that teach, if we'll confess God, then God will know us? If we confess Jesus is the Son of God, then God will know us? Let's look at the verb tenses. Whosoever shall confess... Past, present, or future? future? Shall confess. Future. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him. Past, present, or future? Present. God is presently dwelling in the man that ever confesses in the future that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Thank you, Lord. And the point of all this is, so many men go in looking for sound bites and they'll just quote the verse. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. If you want God to dwell in you and if you want to dwell in God, then you need to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. No, that's, that's putting the cart in front of the horse. Right, right. The verb tenses are God dwells in us. And it's God dwelling in us, that work of grace in us that causes us to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus. Right. I hope you're listening. I just answered Romans 10 a little tiny bit, and I'm going to keep answering it for several sermons. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. I can tell you one salvation. It is not in Romans chapter 10, and that's being born again and God dwelling in you. Because God dwells in you in order for you to ever confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Thank you, Lord. Remember, it's the tenses of verb that determine the priority of action. 
as to which events occur first, not the order in the sentence. That means you never went to school, you never paid attention, you never learned how to read. Because when you read, you've got to be able to see a present tense verb and a past tense verb, and even though the past tense verb may come second in the sentence, it's a priority in action. It came first in order. Look at John chapter 5. Let's go to the Gospel of John. You know, each of, each of the writers of Scripture have some unique characteristics to them because they were written by individual men. And though the words are from the Holy Ghost, the words from the Holy Ghost are through these individual men. So this particular present perfect verb tense is used most, nearly exclusively, by John. Right. You know, when you hear John 3.16, For God so loved the world... You've got to understand that John used the word world more than the rest of the scripture writers put together. Right. You've got to understand that, so you just need to stick in John. Go look up every occurrence of the word world by, by John. That's all you really need to understand that John 3.16 is severely limited. Right. More about John 3.16 on another occasion. Preached it before, sermons to listen to, outlines to read, if you need information on that text immediately. John chapter 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word. We've got a verb there of hearing. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. We've got another verb, believing. Hath, everlasting life. We've got another verb, hath. And shall not come into condemnation. Another verb, coming into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Another verb, passing from death unto life. But the hearing and the believing come first in the sentence. Well, that's just too bad. That's how you write. And if you'll give me one of your letters or emails, I'll show you that you use verbs the same way the Bible does. Let's start. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, that's present tense, and believeth on him that sent me, present tense, hath everlasting life, is presently in possession of everlasting life. That's what hath means, is in possession of, presently. And shall not come into condemnation. That means there's a future salvation, the great day of judgment, that you will not come into condemnation in because you're presently hearing and believing the gospel. But is past, passive voice, present tense verb, has been passed from death unto life. This verse is very important for you to understand, Romans 10. When I hear and believe, there is one salvation already passed being born again. There's a salvation yet in the future. Shall not come into condemnation. So when I hear the gospel and I believe the gospel, it proves that I've already been passed from death unto life. But it's the evidence that in the great day of judgment, I shall not come into condemnation. That is precious. That is precious. But I am in possession of eternal life. I was passed from death unto life. I am now in possession of eternal life so that when I stand before God, I shall not come into condemnation on the grounds of two evidences. I hear the gospel and I believe the gospel about Jesus Christ. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. John 1.12 John 1.12 
But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Well, that's pretty obvious. We've got to receive Jesus in order to be born again. Oh, we're dead in the water. But now listen, this verse can't contradict John 5.24. This verse can't contradict 1 John 5. But it says in verse 12, But as many as received him, that's past tense, to them gave he power, that's past tense, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Present tense, oh, it's looking better. Well, why does he use the past tense, received him? Because he's writing history. In verse 11, he said, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He's dealing with past events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to the Jewish nation. So he wrote in 12, But as many as received him, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Generally, the Jewish nation rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Well, now received is past tense. Things are different now, brethren. Hobbles. Received is past tense, and gave power is past tense. So because they're both past tense, it doesn't tell us which comes first. But then the apostle says, even, let me draw an illustration from my doctrine. Even to them that believe on his name. Believe is present tense. So he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe, present tense. I'm still in 12. I don't need 13 yet. Are you with me? Now I have 12 agreeing with John 5, 24 and with 1 John 5, that God must regenerate us first, then we believe. This is a theological distinction, but you ought to love it. It is, what, it is one of the identifying marks of this church. It is one of the identifying marks of our fathers in the faith. They understood that God must work in a human heart first to quicken him from his death in trespasses and sins in order for him to believe the gospel. Amen. And I'm teaching it to you, and it's not complicated. John 1.12, But as many as received him, past tense, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, past tense, even let me draw an illustration from my argument to them that believe why doesn't it say believed? Because it's not past tense, it's present. Those that presently believe had power given to them. And now let's finish the sentence. Every one of every Arminian child that ever learns John 1.12 as a memory verse is never taught the second half of the sentence. Right. John 1.12 does not end with a period. John 1.12 only introduces the doctrine. Right. Let's hear the rest of it. You know, they love to sell Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. But I'll tell you, when John Bunyan was lying on his deathbed, his last sermon he ever preached was from John 1.13. Because he knew that his only hope was in God. Which were born, even to them that believe, present tense. Which were born. Past. Which were born. 13. Not of blood. It's not by descent from Abraham. Nor of the will of the flesh. It's not by any decision that you make in your fleshly sinful nature. Nor by the will of man. No godparents or priests can intervene on your behalf. But of God. Amen. You were born by God. Right. 
You know, all these churches that have infant baptism, do you know who stands by? Godparents. And they promise, I will bring up these children in the, the faith of our church. And so they, they mix baptism and all this commitment and covenanting together, but it's not the will of man. It's not the will of the flesh. There's only one will involved in the matter, and we've already been to that will in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, according to the good pleasure of His will. It's the will of God, which we're born of the will of God, not the will of the flesh, not the will of man, not of blood, even to them that believe on His name, present tense. Some of you that are older can relate to me and understand that God has been very merciful to show us such things. Those of you that are younger, you haven't been elsewhere where they'll quote John 1.12 until they're blue in the face and never, ever quote you John 1.13. They will never explain John 1.13. They couldn't explain it if they tried to explain it. But to those that are believing, present tense, in the last part of verse 12, they were born by the power of God and according to His will, not the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. Before you're born again, all you've got is flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So before you're born again, all you've got is flesh. So let's go find this fleshly center on the street. Who wants to go downtown and do some testifying with me after this service? We'll go downtown, we'll find a fleshly center. And we'll ask him to exercise his will in order to be born again. But the verse says it is not the will of the flesh. God has to make the change. And you know when God makes the change, you don't have to go chasing them nearly as far because they're running towards you. That's why they were in synagogues. And so the Apostle Paul would go to synagogues to find those that feared God because God had already reached inside them and changed their hearts. Paul didn't go into the brothels and the orphanages to preach to people that only showed they had a flesh nature. He went to those that were worshiping God. Why did he go to the riverside in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, which was a chief city of that part of Macedonia. Prayer was wont to be made there. That's where he met Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Did you read last night in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness? I thought the preaching of the cross is to them that perish the way of salvation. Isn't that what they all teach? Isn't that crazy? For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Well, what good are you going to get done with foolishness? But unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. Oh, you're kidding me. Are saved? Passive voice, present perfect tense, verb construction, perfected in the past, true in the present. I'm already saved. I hear the gospel, and in the gospel I perceive and I discern and I hear the message the power and wisdom of God in saving sinners. You mean a person has to be saved first before they appreciate the gospel? Mm -hmm. Obviously. Before they're saved, what do they have that can appreciate the gospel? The natural man? But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness foolishness unto him, neither can he discern them. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Amen. How about verses 22 through 24? The Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. God knew that if he wanted to get to the Greeks, he needed to bring a gospel that was sophisticated. Athens type of sophistication. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, and so forth, sophistication. 
The Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews require a sign. He needed to call fire down from heaven like Moses did or, or Jesus throw down his rod or Paul throw down his rod and it becomes a serpent. He picks it up and it becomes a rod again. That's what Jews wanted. But Jesus in the gospel and Paul in the gospel never gave the Greeks or the Jews what they wanted. Right. But we preach Christ crucified. <laughs> Unto the Jews, a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them that are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power and the wisdom of God. Amen. 1 Corinthians 1.24 Amen. Jews as a class thought the gospel was ridiculous because the apostles weren't showing the miracles that Moses had shown them in antiquity. The Greeks thought the gospel was ridiculous because it was foolish compared to the credible intelligence and philosophies of their philosophers. So Paul came along and dumbed down the message. Paul did not do his best to convince men by human eloquence. Right. He dumbed the message down. Let me prove, look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.17. This is unbelievable. Do you know what every other church is doing? They are sitting around having scheming sessions on what kind of event they can have for the youth to get kids saved. They are changing the formats of their services. They're allowing them to come in shorts and tank tops, drinking Starbucks, having praise bands, testimonies by athletes, everything they can think of in order to elicit interest. But see, those, those people are all in the flesh. There might be a few of God's elect among them, but they're the exception. So they're altering the worship of God. It's going all around us. It's going on all around us right now. We live in the perilous times of the last days. The apostle never did anything like that. You show me a children's ministry in the New Testament, and I'll eat this pulpit. Show me a children's ministry. Show me a visitation to an orphanage to get people saved. That kind of stuff is not in the New Testament. The apostle went to synagogues where, and where prayer was wanted to be made because he wanted to find people that were reading the Bible. He wanted to find people that were fearing God. He wanted to find people that had a change inside already that he could preach to them. Because remember, he said, I endure all things for the elect's sake. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Do you know what Paul's saying in that verse? I did not come preaching with my best eloquence because I did not want conversions to take place because I was an eloquent speaker. I just laid Jesus Christ on the table to see if they wanted him or not. You say, well, that verse is kind of vague. I don't know if it really means. Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, do you know that Paul had a great education? Paul wasn't a fisherman in the Sea of Galilee. Paul and Peter were as different as oil and water. Peter was a fisherman. When Peter opened his mouth, they knew that he never got through school. It says that in Acts chapter 4. Mm -hmm. When Paul opened his mouth, he was a well-trained man. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. We are told who his professor was. He was highly regarded. When you want to see Paul in elo with eloquence, read Acts chapter 26 when he was in a competition with an orator from Jerusalem right. in front of King Agrippa. And tell me, who did the best job? When Paul wanted to be eloquent, Paul could be eloquent. Can't you tell that from reading his epistles? 
Have you ever read the first chapter of Hebrews and wondered who could write such an eloquent chapter? You say, well, it was inspired. Yes, through the pen of Paul. 2.1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. I did not come with excellency of speech or excellency of wisdom. I did not try to convert you by rhetorical devices. I did not come to impress you with my flowery speech. I was not smiling all the time to put a cramp in my jaw like Joel Osteen. I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined, this is a choice that Paul made, for I determined not to know anything among you, though I'm the most educated man you've ever met. I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith, and brethren, I'm preaching to you about faith, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If there's a church with 30,000 people meeting, it, meeting in it in Houston, I just, I'm just making something up, and their pastor is always using eloquent speech, you can figure out why there's 30,000 there. They're attracted to the smile and the eloquent speech that only lasts 20 minutes. It's memorized word for word before he ever gets up in front of that church. The Apostle Paul, no eloquence, no enticing words of man's wisdom. I determined to dumb my message down. I just laid Jesus Christ out there. You want to see how he did it? Chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Thank you, Lord. This is so fantastic. The weakness of God is greater than the strength of men. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. You give me a man like Paul who dumbs his message down and just lays Jesus Christ crucified out there. Anyone that believes that message, we're going to know something about them. What are we going to know about them? They are the elect of God, and they're born again. If somebody eloquent with a great smile and very charismatic in their personality, and I don't mean charismatic in their doctrine, I mean charismatic in their personality, preaches, and then many people respond, what do we have to question? Are they doing that because they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they're born again? Or were they moved by the flowery oratorial skills of the speaker? Here's how Paul preached. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, like other preachers were doing, but by manifestation of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is how Paul preached, and that was Paul's ministry. He did not use the word of God deceitfully. He just laid Jesus Christ crucified out and commended it and said, In your conscience, 
Do you believe that this is the truth or not? He just commended it to the truth of God. He just commended it to their consciences. He just laid it out there plainly. And if it's hid, it's hid to them that are lost. Because the God of this world is under is leading them and directing them and controlling them so that they cannot see the glorious light of the gospel. I just lay it out there, and if someone hears it, sees it, believes it, understands it, and wants to obey it, it proves they are no longer under the God of this world. It proves they are no longer dead in trespasses and sins. It proves that it is the savour of life unto life, as Second Corinthians two fourteen through seventeen says that the preaching of the gospel is. When the gospel is preached this way, just plainly, just dumped out there, just laid out there, what do you believe? What do you think about that? That I show you from God's word that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high and coming again for his people. Do you believe it or not? Well, most are going to get up and walk out and they never come back in here again. And we know something about them. Second Corinthians tells us it's the savour of death unto death. You preach Jesus Christ and lay it out there and they don't want to hear it again. Well, that's okay. They're dead. They're spiritually dead. So it's the savor. It's the incense to God. It's the aroma that comes up into heaven and God loves it. My gospel. I just had it laid out before their eyes with a man not working deceitfully but very plainly from the word of God and they rejected it. They have judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. Those words are from Acts chapter 13 when Paul preached. But then, just laying it out there, dumbing the lesson down, no entertainment, no fancy stained glass, no importance, just a bunch of ugly sinners here saved by grace. We lay out the Lord Jesus Christ, and someone says, I love love hearing the preaching in that church. I love hearing the singing in that church. I love hearing about Jesus Christ in that church. What do we know about them? It is the savour of life unto life. God gave them the life, and they're just manifesting it to us by hearing and believing what we're doing. Do you know what the gospel never is? The savour of death unto life. Because the gospel never brings someone from death to life. God does all that work. And then when they're alive, when they're quickened, when they're born again, when they're regenerated, they hear it and they love it. Much more could be said. Much more will be said. Please forgive me. It's okay. You have 168 hours in a week. May God be glorified and honored that we love his word very much. And if it were not for his will and his grace and his power in us first, we would not love him. We would not believe his gospel. We would not confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And we would never submit to a Baptist baptism. But thanks be to God. He has done that work in our hearts. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.